We gotta go to the bullpen. Hello baseball fans worldwide and a warm welcome to episode 13 of the Highland Bullpen, your baseball podcast from Scotland. I'm your show host, Richard Pigeon, and on behalf of the Bullpen Bros, myself, Dave Jr., Alan and Dave Sr., plus show mascot Hamish, we wish to congratulate the LA Dodgers on their 2020 World Series win. Well-deserved and fantastic champions. The Dodgers' championship success capped off a season like no other. 2020 will go down as a unique season in baseball history. And we've got a really unique bases loaded for you this week as well, where we interview Campbell McLaren, the legendary MMA promoter and Hollywood producer who created the UFC and has turned Combate Americas into a sensation across the Hispanic world. And in honour of a very special guest, Dave Jr.'s team profile this week is going to focus on the Philadelphia Phillies. In honour of the city, which was both the home of American independence and the first home that Campbell and his family made in America when they landed there from Stirling in Scotland more than five decades ago. So let's lead off with the first in a special two-part Bases Loaded series, where myself, Alan, and the two Daves catch up with Ultimate Fighting Championship co-creator, Campbell McLaren. When it comes to building MMA empires, this man is Alexander the Great. (laughs) <laughs> or, maybe, or, maybe, or maybe that should be Chieftain Campbell. He's a son of Scotland who's lived the American dream. He hit it big in Hollywood and is a made man in Manhattan and all points in between. Welcome to the Highland Bullpen, Campbell McLaren. Thank you, Richard, and good to join you all. That may be the single best introduction I have ever had. <laughs> uh, I've been called a lot of things, but I've never been compared to Alexander the Great. So that <laughs> Campbell, obviously so many people know you for your your shaping of much of the last three decades of mixed martial arts, but obviously with the name, a classic Scottish name, you've you've hit it big in the States and in many ways kind of have got to embody the American dream, but your, your roots are, are in Scotland, Campbell, and, and particularly in the area round about Stirling. Uh, very, very right. And uh, I was a little older than seven when I got to the U.S., Uh, My dad was a RAF fighter pilot that had been hurt flying and was so annoyed that uh, he just wanted to change everything and offered my mother a choice, Australia or the U.S. And having a sister in Philadelphia, which became my introduction to baseball through the Phillies, uh, we moved to Philadelphia. That's very young, Campbell, and a huge step for for anyone to take at any age. What's your earliest memories then of landing in America? I actually have a lot of memories. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a very big deal to emigrate. It still is for people that leave their home and and go someplace else. I remember the flight because my dad was, he was working to calm my mom down because she had a huge family. There were seven, uh, seven siblings, or there were six siblings. One was was killed in World War II. And, and so she had a huge family. And then she, there were eight siblings in her family in Cowie and their nearby cousins had 14. So within those, you know, that's 22 kids. And, and so my mom didn't want to leave. So my mom was crying. She was greeting the whole way. My dad kept saying, name greeting last. Name greeting. You're going to see your sister. Because I did have a sister in Philadelphia. And so he was working that side. And then occasionally I would turn and go, you know, Dad, what's it like? What's it like? And we'd seen a, a Wild West show at, in Glasgow two or three months before we left. Uh, and it was that old-fashioned Cowboys and Indians and Annie Oakley, you know, stuff. Well, obviously, it wasn't Annie Oakley because she'd been dead 75 years. At this point. But And so he said, you know, remember that show we saw? It's like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got to... Idlewild Airport, which is now JFK, yep. it's in New York. And I got off the plane. I'm looking for the horses. I'm looking <laughs> for the cowboy hats. And they weren't there. So that, that was disappointing. So, you know, that's kind of how it kicked off. I guess that's my earliest memory. Uh, there was something going on in the U.S., particularly on the East Coast, then called white flight. 
And it's where white Americans were leaving the inner city, the urban areas, and moving to the suburbs. So we kind of hit right about that time. And my parents were surprised how cheap houses were. Like they thought, you know, they'd be renting forever or, you know, whatever they thought. And we bought a house in a neighborhood. And within two years, um, I, let me just say it this way. I was the only Scottish kid in the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. I was the only white kid in the neighborhood. And um, everybody kind of thought I was a novelty. They thought I was like some polite European. And, and you know, uh, you all know this in, in, in Scotland and in Britain and most of Europe, you don't really wear trousers until you get to about 11 or 12 years old. So I'm in those silly shorts, right, with Fat Albert and the gang. And I've got the sandals that boys wear in, in, in Britain with the little perforated and yeah. they like yeah. girl shoes here. So I'm wearing those. And the shorts. And then my dad and mom, they put me in a tie. And, you know, and I went to school and I would stand up when the teacher came in. And my mom kept a letter home from uh, the principal of the school, the elementary school, uh, primary school. And uh, it said, please stop sending Campbell to school in a tie. We are getting tired of untying him from the chain link fence. The kids would grab me, hoist me up by the tie, and tie it over my head. So I'm doing this, and the teacher would have to come and, and, and let me down. Someone told me I, I could only have a more Scottish name if it was Angus McPorridge. <laughs> you know, uh, so Campbell McLaren, like everybody remembered the name, and that was good and bad, right? Because. Yeah. It's good and bad and being remembered as a kid. So it was this, this interesting background. And I'll share this story about what it felt like. And I say this with respect, and I hope it doesn't come off the wrong way, but it's the truth. And it's really what happened. And we went on the, uh, the subway, the L, and uh, there were two seats. And so my mom and my little brother took those seats. And then I sat across the aisle on the other two seats next to this older black man who was probably 45. I thought he was 300 years old, but <laughs> I sat down next to him and I'm staring, staring, looking at him, looking at his arm and staring at him. And finally said, you know, yo, what are you looking at? And I said, I'm just wondering if you're black under your clothes, because it was the first time I had seen a, 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 a black person living you know, black person. Look, this is, I left Scotland in 1963. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Greeks were considered exotic, right? An ITAL, you know, yeah. that was exotic, right? And um, I'm not even sure there were people from Pakistan in Scotland at that point. So that was, you know, and I was in a black neighborhood <laughs> with black friends and a school that became almost all black. And I had never seen a black person when I arrived in the U.S., that kind of set the tone. An adjustment? It wasn't. It wasn't an adjustment. I went to Mars. We left Scotland and moved to Mars. I mean, there was nothing to connect to, you know. Um, until my grandma came over and stayed with us for six months, there was nothing. It just yeah. and you know, long distance calls were expensive. People didn't yeah. fly that much, you know. And it's still in the mid '60s. Obviously, no FaceTime. No. So it was. It, we felt a, we felt pretty stranded there. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I had a lot of friends, but it was an odd, it was a very odd upbringing. I wonder there, Campbell, you, re you referenced that kind of multicultural element there as well. And it's I'm interesting. The cultural part. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting you went on to make one, one of your successes in the Hispanic MMA environment. It sounds like you've always been comfortable from that in, in different environments. You seem to have taken on that throughout your life, that wherever you are, wherever you are, that ability to, to get on with people and to succeed. Yeah, it's the Scottish good nature that you get along with everyone, right? I mean, that's clear. Uh, there's the famous play, um, you know, Hamilton is here. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so we've seen it and, you know, and everyone talks about it. And I've been trying to explain to people, the one of the reasons you know your Alexander Hamilton was Scottish was he gets in fights with everyone. <laughs> including George Washington, right, who is his mentor. He's fighting with everyone. And then Aaron Burr shoots him in a duel. So it's a very Scottish mentality, like, you know, fuck you. And I'm that. And um, I, but I, when I moved into that neighborhood, 
people would say to me, you either better be able to fight or you better be fast. And I was neither. I couldn't fight. <laughs> and I was slow. So I think I developed a sense of humor that allowed me to turn confrontation into, you know, something that yeah. end up with me being punched or tied to the fence. So I, I think that was I think that was part of it. I do like confrontation. I do like fighting to watch. And uh, I don't like bullies. And, you know, and I, and, and I, I think that's right. But, yeah, I think as an expat, especially in this country, in the U.S., there is a very common immigrant experience. Even the, the Scots historically went to Canada, right? Yeah. A lot of Scots in Nova Scotia. I have an uncle in, in Toronto and a couple of cousins in Toronto. But in the U.S., whether it was Irish, Italian, German, Mexican, Chinese, Jews from, from Eastern Europe, everybody's experience is very similar here. You're embarrassed of your parents' accent, right? Your house smells different than the other American kid's house. You're wearing goofy clothes. You get excited about a package of sweeties sent from home or from Mexico or you know, wherever. And so I think that, that immigrant, you know, and I was naturalized uh, when I was 16. So, you know, as an immigrant in the U.S., you have a commonality with all the other immigrants. And I, I'll tell you, I find a huge um, similarity between the Irish in America and the Mexicans in America, because there's uh, Catholicism is, is one connector, huge families connected to Catholicism, right? Very good beer, Irish food. Sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. That's food, you know, double, triple thumbs up, but the Irish like to fight and they've got a great tradition of fighting because they've spent a lot of time fighting their Northern neighbor. Not <laughs> The Mexicans like to fight. They like to drink and fight. They like to drink and watch fighting. They like to fight, drink, and watch fighting all at the same time if they can. And they've had a lot of trouble from their northern neighbor in the U.S. And so part of what combate is, it's taking people that have been second-class citizens and putting them first. So in combate in the U.S., Latinos are, you know, they're seen as second-class citizens in a lot of ways. Things are changing. Takes, you know, three to five generations for immigrants to totally be American. Yeah. But I think there's this sense that I have made something just for Hispanic fans and Hispanic athletes. And it's it's felt very right and very good. I don't know if you know I did uh, a show called The Iron Ring. Have you the seen reality reality show Campbell? Yeah, but fighting. It's um uh -huh. when I did the UFC, the first UFC has, you know, has a somewhat of a Scotsman in it. You know, the Gracies are from Scotland. Did, did okay. you all know that? I didn't know that. No, that's, you, you mentioned Royce Gracie before, yeah. Mm. Now, Royce was the first champion, and his yeah. brother, Horian, their grandfather was Scottish. He was on a merchant ship. He got to Rio, and he goes, I'm not going back to Scotland. Who <laughs> <laughs> would make that decision? He goes, forget it. So he literally jumped ship off the Dovoff the ship and, and swam. And so so the, the first UFC had three African-American fighters, Taylor Tooley, uh, who I believe was Samoan, Pacific Islander anyway, uh, a Canadian and a Brazilian, and who am I forgetting? A Dutchman. So it was very international. And, you know, uh, five of the eight fighters were not white. So the UFC, I started the UFC. It's a multicultural thing because it was really, a, it was meant to be world. Who's yep. the toughest guy in the world, right? So fast forward, Dana White, you know, they're growing the business and they have gone to this kind of very white athlete base. And, you know, now the, in, the, in, the, in the U.S., uh, the UFC is very much behind President Trump. He's a big yeah. fan. And, I mean, there's a very Trumpian part of this. So, but when I was doing it, not so much. I'm a lefty. I went to school in Berkeley. I'm a Scot, so I'm angry at everybody. So, you know, very different, you know, yeah. uh, philosophy yeah. behind it, right? So, in eight, nine years ago, the UFC had, I think, one black fighter. So, uh, I went with two friends of mine, the Hudlin brothers, that are well-known uh, producers and Django Unchained is Reggie Hudlin's movie and you know a bunch of and all the boom all the Eddie Murphy movies and so on and so we went to BET Black Entertainment Television and said let's do a hip hop UFC and they went that's a freaking great idea because it was 
And uh, we beat the UFC's Ultimate Fighter in the ratings. It did spectacularly well. I know you gentlemen are deep, deep hip hop fans. So you'll know these names. Uh, Ludacris was. Alan is Is that right, Alan? I've got the hairstyle footage. Ludacris, Little John, T.I., who am I forgetting? Nelly. So it's like a great lineup. And, and, and Floyd Mayweather, who cannot sing, but he can dance, yo. He can, he can dance. So we put this together and it was great. And we beat the UFC in ratings. And then, but the funny thing was, everyone went, everyone got arrested on the show. Nelly had two pounds of marijuana on the tour bus, which he said was for his personal use, which I actually believe. But it's still, <laughs> still a lot of weed. And then T.I. punched his pregnant girlfriend and uh, yeah, and on and on. And that's when I thought I've done actually, there's like my ninth hip hop project. And I just said, you know what? I'm just tired of people punching their pregnant girlfriend. And that that's why that's when I switched and started to think about the Hispanic. You know, the U.S. has 65 million Hispanics. What's the population of Britain, gentlemen? 60 million? Uh, yeah, round, round about that, I was going to say, Campbell. And it's a growing population in America as well. And, and that's changing the political landscape in America as well, the Hispanic vote. Absolutely right, you know, because it's a group that they have big families. They have young families and big families. Immigration's pretty much stopped because of our political situation. But the birth rate, you know. It's, and, and it's, it's almost 20% of the U.S. population. So people don't always grasp that immediately. 65 million people. That's a country. Yeah. Right? It's a European country. Right. So uh, and that one thing led to another. And, and it's been it's been great success. We've just had a great time. Great reception. TV ratings are through the roof. We are the number one MMA sport, uh, MMA promotion in Mexico. We're number two in TV ratings in the U.S beat everyone but the UFC, and we're kind of closing in. And in Mexico, we're number one. Uh, it had three and a half to four million people watching our show live in Mexico. And how many years And how many years has that taken, Campbell? That's a relatively quick success. Uh, well, we did a reality show. It'll be seven years in December. But it was not – I, I, I was thinking like a TV producer. I was thinking it was a TV series. Um, and it is four years ago I raised, you know, a fair amount of money, right? You know, so I've, I've raised $40 million. And, um, you know, which is not that much compared to, you know, Bellator and uh, one and some of the other MMA promotions. But that's when I started, uh, five years ago, I started to restructure the company as a sports uh, and media company. And uh, we went on in Mexico, it'll be four years in January. So pretty, pretty, pretty quick success to get to be you know, we're we're beating half of Liga MX Mexican football. Yeah, so, and in a soccer crazy country, pretty impressive too. Yeah, no, that's 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 been good. We beat MLS, uh, which is the U.S. soccer. We beat yeah. Yeah. here in the U.S. So, Campbell, you talked there about that rivalry, that kind of what you've built in that short space of time, closing in on UFC. Do you look on it as a kind of Red Sox and Yankees kind of thing? Is that the kind of rivalry you're building into? No. <laughs> Here's why. They're the proverbial 800-pound gorilla, right? They're worth, Dana White says is now $7 billion, right? My latest valuation was $100 million, which is a lot. I'm very happy. We're going to grow that. But eight, seven, eight billion versus $100 million, their resources are incredible. And um, I really, you know, uh, I don't mind an uphill battle, but that's too uphill, and my research, uh, Nielsen, which is the uh, uh, yeah. television research yeah. company, the, the whole world, but very well known here yeah. in the U.S., and uh, they found 91% of my audience doesn't watch the UFC or Bellator. Well, I have brought a new audience to MMA. Think about that. Think if uh, wh- whoever you support, and I, I really don't want to throw out an example because I know what football is like. If I get wrong, <laughs> I'm probably going to get bumped off the podcast. But uh, imagine if you brought 91% new fans to a football club, right? I mean, or to a league. Yeah. I mean, that's phenomenal, right? So that's why we're not really in competition with the UFC. It's a different audience. Uh, the first thing I did when I decided to do this is I went to see Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta, who was a former owner. You know, and sat down with them and said, I'm, guys, I'm going to do this. My wife was so sure I was going to be killed 
and buried in the shallow desert outside of Las Vegas. She goes, call me the minute you walk out of the meeting because they are going to try to kill you. I said, I don't think so, but I thought I might have been roughly thrown down the stairs that lead into the, you know, Lorenzo's office. But uh, but no, I went out and I told him and I said, uh, this is what I'm going to do. And Lorenzo is a very smart man. Um, he said, I don't think you're taking anything away from us because we've never been able to get Hispanic fans. Velasquez, uh, the Mexican-American heavyweight, was going to bring everybody in, but they were wrong and he got hurt. So. Quite fascinating that because I, I don't know don't know if you follow or anything about Scottish football, Campbell, but um, we probably have an issue with support and, and dwindling support. Uh, and, and I think that one of the worries is when you look at the entertainment choices people have these days, that people aren't getting into it. So it's Scottish football, from our perspective, can be pretty staid in terms of what they're doing to attract new fans. So I don't know if you have an insight to Scottish football, but it's like, what what's is the fan base purely, was that purely an ethnic type uh, arrangement there? Uh, a lot to do with it. And, you know, yeah. we are on uh, Univision, yeah. which is a Spanish language TV network in the U.S. Right? So it's, it's not wrong to think of the U.S. as a bilingual country in some ways. Yeah. But, but it tends to be first, second generation immigrants that speak Spanish, right? And then they acculturate and learn English, except, except for sports, because no matter how long you're out of Scotland, you still want to see whatever it's Celtic, Rangers, whoever your team is, you still want to hear the Scottish accent doing it, right? Because yeah. that's a flavor of home, that's the taste of home. It's comfort food. So even though many uh, U.S. Latinos speak English, 81% of uh, Latinos under 18 speak English, right? Because the younger, the more English. They still want to see soccer, football in, in Spanish. And they want to see boxing in Spanish. So yes, it's ethnic, but it has to do, uh, it, it, it's not necessarily a language issue. It's a culture. Culture, issue. yeah. They watch, right? Because they watch Netflix, Amazon, you know, uh, the American. Uh, yeah. Industry, so. Yeah. No, first time I went to an MLS game, I was, you, you obviously knew it was a different type of audience from uh, MLB, NFL, NHL. Uh, but the Hispanic element of it was, was very obvious. And that was in Chicago, which I probably wouldn't have thought was one of the more heavily populated Hispanic areas. But it was, um, the crowd was Hispanic people. Yeah, yeah, it's there's one million uh, Mexican Americans in Chicago. One million. Right, right. One yeah. million. I, re it, I that dawned on me about seven, eight years ago. I was watching a TV report. Uh, the Feast of the Virgin of Guadalupe is a very big holiday, December twelfth. Uh, and the Virgin of Guadalupe is a very interesting story. It's, she's the first non-white depiction of Mary. Okay. So very dear. Uh, to Mexicans and, and to an extent all Central America. So it, there's only two shrines. The one in Mexico City where the painting, and if you don't know the story, the painting is quite miraculous. 1550, I've been there. It's amazing. Uh, amazing story. Uh, a miracle. If you believe in miracles or you don't believe in miracles, it's unexplained. The painting's there. But the only other shrine is Chicago. And I saw this TV report and I'm looking at I don't know, 15, 20,000 people at the shrine, big crowd, like a very big crowd. It's December 12th. Chicago is a lot colder than Scotland, by the way. I don't care. I, you know, I don't care where you are. Chicago just seems, the Windy City is always cold. And I look and these poor people are wearing three parkas. Like they've got a <laughs> coat and then a coat and then a parka. And they're wearing six sets of mittens. You know, and they're they're like this. You know, the Michelin Man. You remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah all, everybody's like this. And I go, that's weird because Chicago, the folks are pretty hardy. You know, it, they're used to the wind on the lake. And I go, something's wrong. And then the TV report goes, uh, Mexican Americans crowded. And I go, that's it. These poor people, they're 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 sixty degrees lower than what. They're used to. <laughs> and that's what's made me uh, realize Chicago is such a Mexican center. But it's look, it's the same as any immigrant group. Are there jobs there? Yeah. If there jobs there, you're gonna find Mexicans, Irish, Chinese. Are there jobs? We're going. Yeah. Right? No jobs, we're not going. Campbell, from our point of view, our interest in baseball, the more oh, we're yeah, that's why we're doing this, right? Yeah, I forgot there was 
<laughs> the more we get interested in watching baseball, the more we realise how much of a big Hispanic element there is in all the Major League Baseball teams. And um, I was listening to an Astros podcast by a fan, and he, two nights in a row, he invited the official Spanish broadcaster from the Astros team. So he was do- commentating on the game in an official capacity for Astros in Spanish language for their fans. And I presume the Astros will have several players from Latin America. I think there's almost 30% of players in baseball are from. So that fits in with what you're saying about, you know, the massive audience, which is, you know, relatively untapped. Uh, Absolutely. It also brings up a huge difference. Uh, Baseball is a sport that is loved in Caribbean um, Spanish-speaking countries, right? Uh, Puerto Rico, not so much. Puerto Rico, it's boxing, but... um, Dominican Republic. You know, uh, Guatemalans, uh, El Salvador. um, Cuba. Parts of Mexico, northern Mexico. Uh, play baseball. Cuba, of course, plays baseball. Yeah. So uh, when you get to South or Venezuela plays baseball too. Yeah. Some yeah. Venezuelan baseball players. But t- typically you can sort of see it's kind of Caribbean baseball, everything else, football, soccer. Sure. Talking about that experience. So you mentioned Philadelphia and obviously then I presume you kind of went to school in Pennsylvania, then Campbell. Did you experience Little League? Did you play Little League as a kid? Oh. No, no. Um, my dad was was a, a good athlete. He had, he he had won the in number two the Commonwealth Games as an oarsman. Um, he played uh, he played rugby for the RAF. So he was not only crippled from that; he was a tough guy. He had bad back, bad knees, left hand. All the fingers were the same length for being staved in playing rugby. And then one time asked me why I never played rugby, and I said, "Because you're a wreck." You're an example of what happens if you play rugby. So he was a good athlete. Um, he'd actually done a funny tour. He was in NATO and he was stationed in Canada. And they came down to San Francisco and had a charity basketball game with the U.S. Air Force pilots and RAF pilots playing basketball. And he said it was an absolute travesty because none of them had ever played basketball. But uh, that that it was a setup, and and they and they lost. But he knew nothing about baseball. Knew nothing about baseball. So I get there. You know, we're seven. I'm seven years old, eight years old, nine years old. That's kind of prime little league time. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be good at a sport, you have to start young. Here's what I remember about baseball. It's probably eight or nine, and we had one relative in the U.S. My aunt and uncle, uh, my uncle Arch, my aunt Isa. We would sit down. On the weekend, we got to see them on Sundays, and they had TV trays. I don't even know if they still have these. I don't know if they have them in Scotland, but these thin pla- uh, uh, metal trays you opened up and you clipped them down, and you put your TV dinner on that. And then, but my uncle Arch, they get potato chips or pretzels, something like that, that they didn't really like, but they were American, so they wanted to have them. And then they had a Philadelphia beer uh, called Schlitz, Schaefer. It was Schaefer. And, um, they both sit there, trays, trays down, potato chips, and then they had a Schaefer, and they both at the same time go, open up the Schaefer, uh, which is a horrible beer, by the way. But um, then they'd sit, and we'd watch the Phillies. And the commentator was a guy named Richie Ashburn. The Phillies had won the pennant in 1959. It was the last time they were ever, you know, until they won the World Series a few years ago. And then they, they would start, and baseball's a long game. And uh, what's what's longer, cricket? Is there, I mean, no, twenty-four hour Le Mans is longer. <laughs> it's probably the only one. And uh, we'd sit and we'd watch, and they'd go, "What? What? What's happening, Arch?" And my uncle Arch would go, "I didn't again." <laughs> then I go, "What's happening, Dad?" And my dad goes, I, I, "I didn't again." And we'd watch baseball, which I believe to be the least intuitive game on the planet. Maybe cricket is. <laughs> but it falls up there, right? You re- My mom years ago, uh, I, used, I had a Yankees uh, stadium package, the old stadium, and it was very good seats. It was under the overhang behind first base in the, the old stadium. And one time I took my mom and it was one of those perfect nights. You know, it's like June, it, it's 70 degrees at night. It's clear and there's a full moon. That was just spectacular. Night. 
And my mom's my mom likes to root for things. She did. She's no longer with us, but she did. So she's cheering. And I go, wow, she knows more about baseball than I realized. And then at one point, like third or fourth inning, uh, the catchers, uh, they're warming up a new pitcher. My mom turns to me and says, why is that man keep throwing to the other man? And then he throws it back. And I realized there was no understanding whatsoever <laughs> of what was happening on the field. She just was happy to be in New York, yeah. happy to be at Yankee Stadium, happy to be outside with you know her son and her grandkids. Yeah. And, and that's how we were. And I think every immigrant, and, and this is, you know, if you look at baseball, you look at the teams. Uh, Allen's got Detroit represented, one of the oldest teams, if not the oldest. Is it the oldest? One of the oldest teams. And it's the um, it's the industrial towns of America are the oldest teams, Pittsburgh, Detroit, yeah. New York, Philadelphia. Uh, you know, there wasn't, you know, the Atlanta Braves came much, much later. The West yeah. Coast teams came, you know, whatever, 50, 60 years into, into the game. And uh, it's because the park, and they, they were parks then, not stadiums. It was a way for immigrants and working class folks to see how America worked. If you learned the game, the, the metaphorical game, the, the game of being in America, if you learned the game and strived for greatness, you could achieve greatness and you would be rewarded. And the immigrants would go, and, I, and me too. Like, I mean, it's 1965, but we're still immigrants. And, and we would go and we'd sit in Connie Mack Stadium. I think the Phillies are two or three stadiums past Connie Mack at this point. And we'd sit there in the stands and the grass was lovely. And it, would, it was hot because America's hot. I remember my dad one time said to me, I don't understand the Americans' predilection for ice in their drinks. I said, Dad, because it's hot here. <laughs> Summers are actually hot, so you put ice in your drink. So we'd sit there with our my iced Coca-Cola, and my dad was drinking Schaefer, and we'd sit out there, and we'd see that there was a rhyme and reason to life in America, that there was a sense that if you figured it out, it was going to be good. Now, we didn't know what it was. We couldn't figure it out at that time. And so with that background, with my dad knowing nothing, and no way to even access the baseball structure. He didn't know who to call about Little League, right? And and so I watched, but I never played. My little brother is three years younger. He did play. So for me, baseball was this sort of weird um, intellectual exercise, historical exercise. I love the history of baseball. Walt Whitman was a fucking baseball correspondent. Walt fucking Whitman was a poet, he used to write about baseball games that went on in between the battles in, in the Civil War. Walt Whitman. I'm sometimes called Alexander the Great was new, Richard. But how do you compare me to Abner Doubleday? You know, because ironically, I said there were no rules in Abner Doubleday. But I'll take, I'll take, uh, I'll take. So for me, baseball was something to watch, not play. Um, and it was very... You know, it was embarrassing when I got to be a teenager. And I, I started uh, our football team in, in high school. The, team, the, the high school didn't have a football team. It had me and an exchange student from Brazil. And we came in third in the state our first year, primarily because oh. of the Brazilian kid. <laughs> Something's never changed. <laughs> you know, playing backup. Uh, so, you know, uh, I didn't really play baseball. And it was embarrassing to go out and throw. And it, I learned so much about the sport when Campbell Jr., my son, he loved baseball. Like, he he loved baseball so much, and he still does. And he would go, and he would say to the coach, he goes, you know, my dad's a moron. Could you please teach him some stuff about baseball, and, and he'll help you. And so when my son was in Little League, and he played in high school, he was a very good uh, baseball player, uh, he helped me learn by doing you know, uh, I, I would catch the balls after Coach Ray was fun going down to the outfield and the outfield and I'd back up Ray. And then that's when I learned how to play baseball. It was being back up to the coaches that my son had. Fantastic. So that's kind of my baseball story. Fantastic. Dave Jr., were you going to come in there as well? Yeah, just thinking, uh, i seen in your Instagram recently, Campbell, um, just when you're talking about your son there, that you managed to find something of his. Was it a, a particular baseball? Yeah, let me, can I... I put this out to impress you guys, but they're actually my. 
I don't know if you can see. So that's a yep. Mickey Mantle sign ball. Can you see that? Am I hitting yep. that? Yep. Yep. Uh, Yogi Berra. And it says my favorite Yogi Berra is famous for a lot of quotes. And he says this one he signed up. It's not over till it's over, yeah. which is true in life. True in baseball. Uh, Derek Jeter. Oh, and I, yeah. And I, I texted my, I don't recognize that signature, so I can't impress you with it. Willie Mays. How about that? It's Willie oh, okay. That's not true. Um, but <laughs> here, my son, we would go to the old stadium and, uh, you know, I think it was an absolute crime that the old stadium was torn down. Uh, if they did that in Boston, if they tore down Fenway, there would be riots in the streets and someone would be killed. That, that, that's just true. I don't even think that's hyperbole. But yeah. uh, in the great tradition of New York, there's not enough boxes for the millionaires. There's just not, we can't sell enough beer. This is, you know, and so the, the, the house that Ruth built was torn down, you know, and I've been a few times to the new stadium. I'm actually, I want to go on record Proud of this as a Scott. I put in the first official complaint at the new stadium. Well done. <laughs> said, you're number one. I said, well, <laughs> I guess no other Scots have been here yet because. <laughs> yeah, we'd, we'd call that a whinge. We'd, we'd say it was a good whinge you'd had there, Campbell. That was quite quite, quite right too. So, so Campbell, your baseball, you mentioned obviously the Phillies there and the Yankees as well, but obviously you went to school, as they'd say in the States, at the University of Berkeley in California. Did you venture out to any baseball games on the West Coast then at that kind of stage? No, no, no. I was captain of the weed team, however, which I'm quite uh, – <laughs> I don't know if you, if, if you know Berkeley's tradition, but you're a big part of the 60s. And when I got there, I graduated in 1980. When I got there, it was still the 60s. So uh, I didn't know from – I didn't. I, the only team I knew about is my, my girlfriend was captain of the girls' uh, volleyball team. Yeah. Sounds impressive. I, I went to those games. But then I came back to New York. My wife and I, we weren't married at the time, came back in 1981. And this good friend of mine, a well-known sports writer, uh, uh, he kept going, come to, come to the game with me. You can smoke weed in the stands. It's okay. Because this was, you know, the 70s and the 80s. New York was kind of derelict, right? I mean, yeah. not great shape. I go, why do I, I can smoke weed in my apartment? I don't have to go to Yankee Stadium to smoke. <laughs> Who cares? And the Yankees, if, if, if you know the history of the team, weren't doing particularly well at that point. So um, Berkeley, no. California, no. Uh, I went to uh, the Giants, uh, the old Candlestick Park a couple times. But yeah. it, again, it was kind of just to get outdoors. You know, I wasn't a Giants fan. Uh, but then once uh, New York in the 90s hit, um, my son Campbell, uh, did, as I said, loved baseball above all other sports. And we would go to the old stadium a lot. And um, and that was Derek Jeter and that whole team that did so well. And they it just seemed like they were going to win the World Series every year. Just seemed, you know, the joke was, what's the difference between uh, hot dogs in Fenway and hot dogs at Yankee Stadium? They don't serve them uh, at Fenway in October. <laughs> that is, uh, we do have, we have a Red Sox fan amongst us. I should I should have pointed out earlier, Campbell. Dave Senior is also an Englishman, so it's affirmative action, bullpen style. Say that partially explains it. But you know what's nice about uh Celtic and Rangers is they've got that Red Sox Yankees rivalry with religion mixed in. <laughs> you're gonna, you know, I mean, it's as if, uh, if the, the Red Sox were Muslim and the, and, the, and the Yankees were Jewish. That's the only thing that I could come up with. <laughs> yeah, a quick story about my son, and this will explain his dedication, devotion to, his, uh, to baseball. We would go to the stadium about an hour and a half early to watch BP. And, you know, I don't know if you know, but famously, the Yankees don't take BP before the game. They don't want to practice batting practice. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, batting practice. So they don't want to give away the secret sauce or wh whatever Yankee, you know, mentality is. <laughs> By the way, I'm not a, I'm not a Yankee fan. My son explained it to me. He says, you have to be born into it. You don't just show up. And <laughs> you have to be born into it. So I'm a Philly fan. He's the Yankee fan. Sure. So we go an hour and a half early, you know, whatever it's game time is one o'clock. So we're there like 1130 watching BP 
And then we always go to, you know, it was Memorial Park to see, you know, all the legends of the Yankees. We do that. Now we take our seats about half hour, 20 minutes before the game. So, and then we stay. I mean, you couldn't leave a game with him. He, he would have gone crazy. That would have been the most offensive thing you could do. You could, baseball's the state of the end. So I'm there an hour and a half early. Games are, you know, usually three hours, right? Two and a half, three hours long. Something like four hours in at that point. And then he wants to go wait at the player's gate, you know, to watch the players come out, which takes another hour and a half, two hours, because they shower, you know, and they whatever they do, and then they come out. And he wants to see all of them. So for me, a Yankee game was about a six, six and a half hour investment. And, um, and much as I like baseball, sometimes it seemed a bit long. And one time I was going, oh, kid, I mean, can we just skip the player's gate this one time and go home? And he goes, Dad, we're at Yankee Stadium. Where would you rather be? Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I, and I got that. Where, where would you rather be? You know, where? I mean, it's a, it's a sanctuary. It's a temple. You know. What what do you think about that, Campbell? What's the what's the best stadium, sporting stadium you've been to? Um, I, at one time, uh, my son and I were trying to hit all the baseball stadiums. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, God, I mean, I'm you know, you, I'm going to offend somebody, right? Yeah, go for it. Uh, I think Wrigley. You know, especially now that the old stadium's gone uh, for the Yankees, Wrigley in Chicago. I mean, it's different, a little different now. People used to go worst team, best stadium. But Wrigley is, it looks exactly the same as when they built it in 1922, you know, whatever the year is. But it doesn't look old. It looks, it's the same. And the Ivy, you know, and the people watching from the apartment in Chicago, uh, uh, a lot of people have rooftop gardens and they go up there and watch the game looking down into Wrigley and it's a low wall you know it looks it's the same dimensions mostly as Fenway yeah so it's you know it's a hundred year old park that's perfect and and like and like football people sing there that doesn't happen so much in other American you know stadiums but they they sing along and the bullpen is in front of the seats along the third baseline there is no bullpen it's not in the back of the stadium. You're if you're sitting in those seats, and there's always people there, regardless of the Cubs' record, wherever they are in, in you know in, in 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 league play, there's still a lot of people there because it's a beautiful old park. I mean, it's really what baseball was, you know, at the turn of the century. Who has been to Wrigley Field, guys? Yeah, I was interested to, to hear what you said. That it is amazing. It's almost like, and I say this in a good way, it's almost like a, as if they've just built it. It's like a museum of what I, w- I went into 1999. I went to Detroit, and I, it was the last season when they played in the old Tiger Stadium. And that was one of the best experiences I had. But, and that was built about the same time as Wrigley, but it wasn't in as good a condition. Well, it was in horrible shape. It's a great park, but in horrible shape. Yeah, it was a fantastic match. It was the shithole in Philadelphia, Connie Mack. I mean, the Yankee Stadium was kind of a shithole. I mean, it 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 wasn't nice. It's just so historic. Yeah, it is a shame that they tear these places down. Not good, bad. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Highland Bullpen. We're also featuring on all the usual social media channels: Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for the Highland Bullpen. On Twitter, our handle is at H-B-U-L-L-P-E-N, at H-Bullpen. At Instagram, it's Highland underscore Bullpen. And Facebook is quite simply the Highland Bullpen. We've also got our email address, highlandbullpen at gmail.com. We really appreciate those of you who've got in touch, asking questions, We are here to learn ourselves and we're here to help you guys learn as well. So feel free to contact us and follow us on any of those channels. Thank you. Hello to all of our intrepid viewers who are no doubt enjoying the podcast so far. Uh, So you can take a five minute break while I waffle some nonsense and make a cup of tea. You may or may not have listened to a fantastic interview with Campbell McLaren. 
the founder of the UFC, and given his roots when he first moved over to the States, it gave me an idea to research my next team on my kind of mission to understand MLB that bit better. So the team in question this week are the Philadelphia Phillies who, in my mind, the one thing that always rings true about it, rings true being the pun, is the Liberty Bell, but also the famous stairs uh, which Rocky ran up in the, the Rocky series of films, which is uh, pretty iconic. Um, but having done a little bit more research into the Phillies and just trying to find facts a little bit bit different, off the beaten track, um, obviously they're one of the MLB's oldest teams dating back to 1883, uh, you know, Philadelphia, you know, the Phillies, the nickname stems from the city. And, and going with that, the oldest team in American sports with the same name and in the same city. So a lot of American sports teams move around, but the Phillies have the oldest name uh, based, given that they're based in that same city, which is which is pretty cool. They've won two World Series since their inception in 1883. Um not bad going, but they probably have liked some more. Their favourite son uh, has an absolute killer moustache. If you, you Google, if that's your search engine of choice, I quite like DuckDuckGo for those that are interested. Um, Mike Schmidt has an absolute killer moustache, uh, which alone belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, going back to the Liberty Bell, which forms part of uh, one of their logos, they really do have an iconic font or livery, would that, would that be the right term, uh, across their, their shirts. It's a bit of a throwback to the 70s. Um, and uh, yeah, it's pretty cool, actually. I really quite like that. Um, on the bullpen, we always like to relate American sports teams to what their Scottish football equivalent would be. Uh, I know it's, it's quite hard to do that for me at present. Thinking about a lot of Scottish football, um, the Phillies did actually suffer quite a, a bit of a disaster, which... Um, links in with definitely something that happened at Ibrooks with Rangers um, quite some time ago but in 1903 one of the balconies collapsed killing 12 uh, supporters really really quite sad and um, poignant in their history uh, talking about history I found it quite interesting again it's just one of these nuggets that you find when, when researching the Phillies nearly became, or they did become, the Blue Jays in 1944, some 33 years before um, the Toronto Blue Jays took that name. And so it came about through a competition just to sort of rebrand the team, rename them, uh, and the Blue Jays were one of the, the offerings. Blue Jays have always been quite a cool name to me, but it, it, it didn't really take off. It went around the block for a couple of years. They toyed with it. They actually passed the name to some of their affiliate teams in the, the, the minor leagues, but it didn't quite take off for the Phillies and it stuck. You know, the Phillies have, have stuck through at that time. Uh, talking about sticking, they really have stuck with the, the tried and tested American flag, red, white and blue uh, colours on their uniforms. They've got a fantastic blue throwback as well. So I think for a lot of those following Scottish football, if you say red, white and blue, the instant thought is, is Rangers. Um, but this blue is kind of more a pastel blue. It's really quite something. As opposed to, I, I took some stick for not appreciating some other teams' uniforms, but this one does, again, date back to the 70s. And it's pretty cool looking. It's, it's really quite cool. Um, so that red, white and blue, I'm not sure where we can, it would be an easy one to throw them against Rangers. Um, you've got Ross County as well, which Alan uh, would be linked with. Um, but there must be some teams, I'm sure, um, there's some kind of lighter blue teams in, in, in the lower Scottish division. Uh, Broth, perhaps? I'm not sure. Uh, Stenhouse Muir might even have an away top, a light blue away top. But um, yeah, they've not been a successful team, so, so that might be the key there. Uh, and probably two of the other things which I found... Uh, definitely uh, appeal to me uh, more than uh, normal-minded people. Uh, they have one of the great mascots, the Philly Fanatic, who is just a big, hairy, gonzo, Sesame Street-type monster. But I think he's, from what I can see, he's very beloved in American sports. You know, He, he has a lot of fun with opposition teams, quite often <laughs> getting, getting decked uh, or yeah, causing opposition 
players or managers to be ejected, which is pretty fun, pretty cool. He rides about in ATV, shooting hot dogs, shooting t-shirts into the crowd. Uh, he seems to just be a bit of a bit of fun. Um, reminds me a little bit of a Simpsons episode, and I'm sure that they try to mimic that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really quite cool. Um, the Philly fanatic, again, PH being the the kind of the term there. Uh, sticking with uh, Phillies, uh, perhaps this one could begin with an F. Amazingly, and I, I can't believe this isn't a thing now, but the Phillies back in the 70s had a thing called the Hot Pants Patrol, which is effectively everything that you could ever dream of. It really is just a bunch of fit women dotted around the stadium showing people to their their seats uh, you could look on it as fantastic customer service but i think yeah we, we all know exactly what it meant um one of the the great things yeah you know, of course i had to do a whole lot of research for this very serious business in this area in particular uh, when the letters went out to the women who had applied for this role the letter back from from, <laughs> from the phillies uh, and to quote when you come to the interview, wear your shortest skirt and tightest blouse. So that was quite something. Uh, you might not get away with that these days. You might, who knows. Uh, but it was definitely a sight to be seen. And there are many, many Google images out there, should you wish to just double check that what I'm conveying is correct. But that was my team for the week. The Phillies, pretty cool team, really smart uniform. Uh, again, they've got the great usage of the Liberty Bell in there. Ancient order, great stuff. A fantastic team profile there from Dave Jr. to close out this episode of the Highland Bullpen. Thanks again to Campbell McLaren. And don't forget we'll have more from Campbell in the second half of that two-part series. And I can guarantee you it is well worth waiting for. The Highland Bullpen is a Tartan Podcast production. On behalf... On behalf of myself and our fellow bullpen bros, Alan, Dave Sr. and Dave Jr. and Hamish the Highland Bull, take care and we'll see you soon. <laughs>